Welcome to the Food and Drink Business Podcast. Your on-the-go bite of the food and beverage industry. Welcome, folks, to the Food and Drink Business Podcast, brought to you today by Planet Protector Packaging. My name's Grant McCarran, and as ever, I'm joined by Kim Berry, the editor of Food and Drink Business and the host of this show. G'day, Kim. How are you doing today? Hi, Grant. I'm very well. I'm very well. Should we have our compulsory weather chat? Oh, I'm tempted, but I'm sure we're actually warmer down here than you are up there. Who knew? It's about to change, though. Melbourne's about to go from 29 today down to 17 tomorrow. Oh, it has quite the penchant for that, doesn't it? Yeah, so southerlies kick in and everything drops. But hey, we're not here to talk about the we're weather. We're not here to talk about the we weather. Do every episode. I know. It's <laughs> gonna it's gonna get very old. I'm waiting for people to, you know, start writing in and just going, I really love the podcast. Can you stop talking about the weather? <laughs> On to far more important things. Today we are joined by Hamish Thompson. He's a former regional president and global brand head for Mars Incorporated. Uh, Hamish and I first met up in on the Central Coast in Sydney when he was at Mars uh, Foods up there, and we were meeting some very exciting, innovative businesses as part of their Seeds of Change program. He has moved on and took a great big leap to write a book, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. It's uh, The title is It's Not Always Right to be right and other hard-worn leadership lessons, sorry, hard-won leadership lessons. It's published by Wiley and I have to say, I am always one for a, uh, what do we call them? Not a self-help, that's a terrible, a terrible sort of phrase, but I like books that give tangible tips and skills rather than sweeping platitudes and just general feel-good nonsense. And Hamish, you've done it. It's fantastic. Welcome. Thank you very much, Kim. It's, uh, <laughs> I enjoyed our time when we met a couple of years ago within uh, the Seeds of Change Accelerator launch, I think it was. But uh, that's right. the plaudits for my book are appreciated, so thank you. <laughs> I want to dive right in because I do love these sorts of books, but then I can also be incredibly jaded and cynical about them as they sort of come out and, and, and they're sort of some sort of woke business bingo of like, you know, how many, how many um, kumbaya moments can we create or lord the benefits of butcher's paper. Uh, But it was a very quick realisation that what you wanted to do here was really provide, I guess, some really practical advice or learnings from your experience in uh, food and beverage, FMCG sort of space, in senior leadership and indeed leadership roles. What was the motivation for it? What drove you to go, I'm going to write a book? Well, listen, I'll I'll probably, I'm very unapologetic. I've been doing this for probably now 30 years on the corporate side, definitely not on the the writings uh, from the author side. But I'm unapologetic. I'm a corporate guy. I've had a lot of experience within that. I'm probably similar to yourself, Kim. I think I've probably picked up maybe a thousand leadership books and management texts over the years. I get incredibly bored very easily. Um, I love new perspective, I love diversity, new ways of thinking, etc. However, most books that I find, you're sort of into chapter three or page 100, and it's very theory-oriented. Now, I'm an incredibly results-oriented person, I'm competitive, um, I don't apologise for that, 
uh, but I like pragmatic and I like realistic uh, areas to focus on. And I think when you do pick up over year after year, there are many elements, insights, lessons, mistakes that you've made along the way. And whilst we normally think, yeah, okay, those are beneficial from your own perspective, some of those insights can actually sort of unlock potential within others. So it's a little bit altruistic, but um, it's been enjoyable along the way. I think right from the get-go, like at the very, um, in, in chapter one, you establish straight off the bat, relationships are the most important asset in a business. And then further on, you talk about how peer-to-peer relationships are paramount for organisational success. And then the, the flow on from a relationship, I guess, is the concept of trust. And how do you see that playing out at the moment in an environment where there's so much change, um, job keepers coming to an end, COVID-19 just threw everything up into the air, uh, you know, there's greater automation, there's lower job security. How do you tangibly build those relationships and that sense of trust when that's sort of the landscape you're operating in? It's interesting, isn't it, that you're you're probably you're not alone in regard to thinking that change is happening faster than ever before. Um, and I'm not necessarily saying that's wrong, but I've actually always viewed that change has probably been always paramount. It's always been existence. People have talked around VUCA and super VUCA for years and years. So I think it's always been prevalent, but what I have found is uh, is quite remarkable. Most people think that business success, organizational success, and personal success is probably more built off technical and functional brilliance. Um, development reviews, discussions are always around strategic agility, uh, intellectual curiosity, etc., and a real focus on functional and technical learning skills. Um, and I think the longer that you're in the game, or the way that I've found it, is that those areas that are enduring around relationships, around trust models itself, those are the areas that actually create long-standing success. And it's interesting, the trust models that I mentioned, I've always viewed there's two types of trust. One, you actually start with a position of trust, and it's only lost if you lose that. Or secondly, and it happens with a lot of people, you have to earn trust from someone else or you have to actually secure that trust through someone else proving to you. From my side, life's a little bit too short uh, on that front. I always start out with, you have my trust implicitly, and that's what actually enables connections to be uh, to get transformation. I'm not saying it's right or wrong, uh, but it's just a different way to look at it. Mm, because it's still, I mean, it's still so driven by an individual, isn't it? Like if you're coming in as a, as a new CEO to head up Mars in Australia, the, how you do that is going to be very different from uh, from someone else. So I like that idea that it comes from we're starting from a base where we all trust each other, and we're going to we're going to work from there up. But what <laughs> what happens if you have a pretty jaded workforce or a pretty cynical workforce who's just like, well, here's the latest the latest suit who's going to come in and tell me that I have to run this production line faster than we're already running it or whatever the case may be. Uh, what are some actual tangible things you do? Is it being visible? Is it being accessible? Is it actual events? Like what do you do to really move people from that cynicism to that sense of belonging and that relationship? 
I think the, the very first element, if I treated exactly the same trust model as I would on a personal relationship as a business relationship, um, how do you actually create that level of trust in the first place? And one of the very first elements that I believe as a, as a, as a good leader should be that you're respected and also you're liked. And to actually have a position of being liked, a lot of people disagree with this. They say that business should be actually divorced in regard to liked and it has to all be about respect. Um, I'm slightly different. I think people will work for people they respect, but they'll follow people that they actually respect and like, and they'll walk over coals for people that they like. And just uh, small instances in regard to personal encounters, getting to know people, their situation, their beliefs, their values, their family situations, starting with their desire and their agenda before your own, those go a long way to establishing trust. I think the other element is that I believe more leaders are getting uh, ensconced within this, um, showing vulnerability, not coming and having all the answers directly from day one. Um, showing the areas that you're struggling with, encouraging an egalitarian approach, reverence, opinions, account, and actually actively listening. And these are they're not difficult areas, but they're actually hard for people to understand and believe that your focus as a leader, you have to actually start on those uh, those sides. So, I personally, I think it's a, it's the hallmark of a great leader. And one one of the other things, Kim, which was fascinating to me. You see at very senior levels, new people come within an environment, and that may be a business turnaround or a transformation, and they don't honour they don't honour the past. They don't talk around that. They don't respect the present or they don't provide hope for the future. And if you don't provide those three areas, you're immediately creating a barrier for what's happened in the past and a hell of a lot of sweat and tears and yeah. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> about being in the ditches actually takes place as well. Likewise, if somebody's not actually providing hope for the future, um, not too many people are probably wanting to uh, to follow that leader or that direction. So I believe it's very similar within a uh, personal, personal side as is within business. Yeah, I also loved the, the line that you used, uh, how you treat those who leave matters to those who stay. I think I think that is just, oh, it's so true. It's so true. It's, yeah, it's, it's interesting. But if you think back within your own experience, the amount of time that doesn't take place. And uh, I'm, a, I'm an acceptor of organisational revamps and organisational design changes, and invariably there will be redundancies and um, job structural changes. I'm not an acceptor if they are done on a regular basis and without actually providing hope and solidity for the future. And equally, just the way that you would want to be treated if something doesn't go according to your agenda or your plan, um, you should be putting that responsibility across others. And when you do that well, and it's a responsibility of care, when you do that well, those employees and those associates who, uh, who stay, you immediately get respect for them. They realise that it has to happen. They realise the understanding. But equally, you need to portray that it has been genuinely a difficult decision to make. Um, and again, some people talk around divorcing. It's only business, never make it personal. My own perspective on that, if you don't make it personal and it's not yeah. gut-wrenching for you, um, you're just a manager and you'll never yeah. be a leader of others, which uh, doesn't sit well with me. 
No. Uh, I did like that um, you said you had a quote from Mario Gabriel Andretti, uh, apart from wishing that you, you know, looked more like him. Uh, <laughs> but your, uh, your ideal state of mind was uh, a quote from him, which was, if you are in control, you are not driving fast enough. <laughs> yeah. Please explain. Oh, one of the... Uh well, to be honest, on that, it's um, it's interesting that the older you get, you should actually be more bold and you should be more risk oriented and taking. Um, in many ways, and you see so many examples of it. It's almost the Benjamin Button effect. It works in the opposite. That the more experienced you've got, you should be more calculated. You should be more backing of your abilities. You should be more financially astute and aware to make sort of greater risks. But the majority of people that you will talk to, and particularly within CEOs who've come to the end of their career, first question, if you had your time again, what would you do differently? And undeniably, it comes back, I wish I'd been bolder and I wish I'd been faster. And I've always loved that quote from uh, Mario Andretti. I'm uh, a little bit of a car nut itself, but there are more than enough clever cookies in the world that... If you push the boundaries, surround yourself by people who are not yes people, but able to say, yeah, love your idea on that, Hamish, but get back in your box. You've already given 10 this month. Um, getting that balance and approach is, uh, is 100% right. But uh, I am still amazed that majority of people, the older they get and the more experienced they get, they actually become a little bit uh, little bit less risk-oriented, which uh, yes, I, I was going to say risk-averse. <laughs> Mm, well, I think I think much. people I think people feel they've got more more to lose. You, you can be more reckless in your twenties than you can be in your forties or your fifties because you've often then got kids and a mortgage. So it's a it's interesting, but uh, but I'd like to think that sometimes being bold in or reckless in your forties it's it's not the same as what reckless looks like in your twenties. It it has to be more nuanced and intelligent, but you still can be. I live by the mantra in my workspace, well, mostly in life too, of uncomfortably excited because then you're constantly sort of, well, it's that pushing yourself, you know, and and you're constantly, you're excited, but there's a level of, what's happening? Anyway, that's enough about me. Um, (laughs) I know what you mean though, Kim. It's it's almost calculated risk-taking, isn't it? And one of the models I've got in the book is talks around um, moving from the comfort zone to the stretch zone to the panic zone. Um, and you're never supposed to actually enter the panic zone, but uh, I don't think it's too bad. Sort of 10% of your time, when you enter that zone, you suddenly unlock new competencies and capabilities that you didn't think possible. And equally, particularly from a leader or a manager's perspective, to allow others to step into that panic zone can actually broaden their horizon and um, unlock uh, untapped and almost dormant potential within so many people. Um, And traditionally, you want to do the parenting thing and hold their hand and direct the whole way. But really, to be able to sort of step back, uh, even though it feels uncomfortable, can actually be very liberating as well. You're listening to the Food and Drink Business Podcast by Yaffa Media. We'll be right back after this. Finally, there's an alternative to polystyrene that won't cost the earth. 
Planet Protector Packaging has developed a range of eco-friendly, sustainable solutions that are commercially viable and cost-effective for your business. Our industry-specific Woolpack range has been independently tested and proven to outperform alternative cold-chain packaging. Here's the kicker. Our solution can significantly reduce your overall packaging and transportation footprint, and it doesn't cost the planet. To find out more, head to planetprotectorpackaging.com. And now, let's get back to the discussion on the Food and Drink Business Podcast. So, talking about progressing through through a career, and one of my favourite chapters in the book is Chapter 11, called Get a Life, and it talks about life work balance. And I think that it's something at the moment that is such a, it is so top of mind for so many, you know, in the fallout of COVID-19 last year and the definition of work and where we work just changed for so many. I really liked the key points that you make at the beginning of that chapter saying, leadership does not always mean sacrifice. And every leader is responsible for role modeling, effective life work balance. And that to do that, you need to have discipline, diligence, focus, and dedication to a work-life balance. Can you tell me how to do that? (laughs) (laughs) All all I know, Kim, is I've failed dismally many times. I'm really bad at uh, it. Yeah, I I know exactly what you mean. I think everyone struggles on it. So the very first thing, and I I got this terminology via Paul Polman, the ex-CEO of uh, Unilever Worldwide, and it's probably been sort of the last 15 years, I've always termed it life-work balance, not work-life balance. Now, I'm not saying one's correct and one's wrong. It's just for me, um, I know that if I've got excellence in life and I've got balance within life, I'm so much better within a work perspective. Now, I've dropped the ball. I imagine exactly like Kim, like Grant as well, <laughs> we've all dropped the ball. We get that ratio uh, 100% wrong at times. But I think we appreciate that we're never going to be our best at work when you don't have that uh, that balance. Now, getting that balance is different for everyone. Some people, their third space and their place to sort of uh, delineate and take a sort of a break from a, almost like a corporate athlete program is exercise, some's wine, some's music, some's chilling out, some's holiday, family, whatever it is. So everyone's different. But my personal thing is you need to know what are your signals when you are starting to see that uh, balance not being met, mine's impatience. I get very sort of snappy. I'm, a, um, I'm an impatient person. I'm always driven, wanting the next thing within a work sense, never, uh, never satisfied. However, when I start uh, getting into demand and tell mode, I know that I'm out of kilter within that. Um, so everyone's got their different cues, but equally, that's self-observation. Who are those confided people? mainly down to your partner, but also those people at work who care for you and are compassionate enough to have a direct discussion. Hey, Hamish, Kim, Grant, it's about time, guys. Just uh, step back a little bit. You're crossing that sort of line. Um, so I think that's a, um, it's, it's a vital one to do. But impressively, I've been surrounded by incredible global leaders who are under so much pressure and their time, their commitments, their responsibilities are mind-boggling, but they always seem to have time on the ball. 
are the most composed within the room. Experience has shown that they don't need to go within that panic zone. Decisions don't need to be made instantly. And equally, they realise that if they get it out of kilter, they're not actually inspiring others to step up into leadership positions. Um, and again, I think that's a hallmark of a great leader, even though it is incredibly hard to actually achieve. Yeah. Yes, yes. Um, I will say to our listeners that in each chapter, Hamish breaks down uh, what he's talking about into a section called the practical part and a section called models for the whiteboard. And they're pretty much like little tasks or little activities within um, the book to help you work out what makes you tick or what would work for you uh, in the particular area of that chapter. And there's a really great little chart there looking at life-work balance. And is it something you have to review and check back into on a fairly regular basis? I think so. And I think it's um, it changes by the situation. Those days of having ups and downs and sort of peaks and troughs within the career, I think those um, those have probably changed a little bit. We seem to be always <laughs> have specific requirements and uh, when you die, your entree is always going to be full. So I think um, those downs and those lows are probably sort of distant memories. However, pressure situations will change significantly. What hits a pressure button for you could be completely different for someone else. It may be in regard to a major presentation. It could be a development. It could be a key partnership and negotiation activity, launch of a new product, a new brand, taking on a new global role. Um, everyone has different sort of buttons to push. And I think the worst thing around it is when you're operationally immersed, you often can't see that yourself. And that's where those partners, those trusted confinements who genuinely have a position of care, and I think you only have that if you are liked and respected, they'll tell you directly. And they tell you out of a position of care and a position of concern. And that is where when you surround yourself with good-minded people, good values, trust model, friendship model, um, you know you're going to actually uh, actually be in a good place. I do it can probably I, I try and do it sort of every six months. Um, we try and have a an unofficial sort of uh, evening review over <laughs> over a couple of bottles of wine to sort of say, yeah, really, Hamish, you've screwed this yeah. one up badly. Um, but uh, yes. Please do it regularly. <laughs> oh, that's um, <laughs> yeah, I like that. Oh, those in a position, it's from a position of love. <laughs> Pull your head in. <laughs> Go for a run. Enjoy the wine. Um, my other uh, favourite chapter is chapter 14 which is called The Hardest Part of a Decision and it's obviously it's about decision making and there's I'm just going to quote a paragraph for 20 years I have attempted to execute the mantra the hardest part of a decision is the decision itself it has saved me a lot of pain and a lot of heartache once I have gone through the clear process of decision-making, ensuring I stick to guiding principles, I remind myself that whatever the outcome, it was the best decision at the time. I accept it, endeavour to never question it, and I move on. I think those last two parts, to never question it and to move on, they're the money shot in terms of that quote because I think there's a lot of people who make the decision and then probably spend an equal amount of time questioning whether it was the right one and imagining 
the what if, if they'd gone another way. What was your experience to get you to that point where that was how you were going to look at those decision-making aspects of, you know, of your leadership? I had a very uh, interesting conversation with um, a lady within the Centre for Creative Leadership. It's a Colorado-based Colorado, um, program. And it was all around leadership sort of style and all. And the majority of these things, Kim, I'm probably, uh, I'm probably like most, 98% let it go over your head, the occasional sort of 2%. Oh, gee, that actually makes a bit of sense. <laughs> this one was very good because it was um, – I wasn't actually enjoying myself in regard to the roles and some of the responsibilities that I had. And there were a number of key decision-making and um, some of these – related to sort of factory closures, organizational design sort of revamps. And the bits that I'd always struggled on, one, not divorcing it from a personal situation as a business, but I'm okay on that. And I think you should keep those together as we talked about before. But secondly, once I'd made a decision, I used to ruminate. And similar to the way you described it, I used to consistently think, was that the right decision? And essentially, the uh, the very sound counsel that was provided across, Hamish, hey, give yourself a very hard time on the decision-making process. Did you follow the right process and the right procedures, getting the right stakeholders involved, doing your due diligence, et cetera? That is the bit that you should give yourself a hard time on, scrutinize the hell out of it, get yourself better. But once you've made the decision, as long as you've followed a an effective decision-making process, you accept it. You've made the best decision at the time. Don't ruminate around it because, one, it's a distraction that's not going to help you at all, just drives your mind in all directions. But, B, as a leader, you can't afford to distract and be uh, focused on what could have been. You need to be actually providing pathways ahead. And I think the other thing that's really come out of that is I'm a massive believer in the concept about learn, test, learn, um, how you consistently are looking at what's that next opportunity, what's a different business model or way to look at things um, because invariably we know change will happen and it's okay to fail within those things. You're not betting the whole house, you're making calculated risks, but you're doing those continuously. And when you fail, everyone will say it, but you will learn, you'll gain insight, and you'll be better next time going forward. And as a leader, that means you have to provide psychological safety. You can't give someone a hard time for failing. You can give them a hard time if they don't actually learn from it and uh, build it going forward. But um, you have to actually provide total freedom and autonomy, coaching, not directing, um, and actually embrace failure as well. So rumination, it's, uh, it can be very... Uh, yeah, it can be a worrying thing. And just quickly, I've recently joined a um, Oz Help, which are a leading mental health provider within Australia as a board uh, board member. And the negative clinical uh, outcomes of rumination through depression and mental health uh, is actually alarming as well. So it's a it's a, it's a dangerous thing, personal and also business front. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And I think just particularly now with social media and and decisions that are made can be torn down or judged so quickly. And from what you're saying, it's actually going to be just even for just the mental health of the, of the decision maker, let alone the business outcomes of it, 
it's so critical that you're hitting those posts and you're and you're going through that checklist before the decision is made and then almost making signing a contract with yourself that look you know this is why this decision were made was made these were the decisions that went into it and then moving on and so long as you i guess so long as you own it so long as you stand behind whatever that decision was that you made it's yeah very, very interesting. One last thing I wanted to talk to you about, which I thought I also really liked, was you talk towards the end of the book about who is writing your agenda. And the thing that I liked about that was in the practical part and the models for the whiteboard, it gives tips on what you can do if you're wanting to really advance into that leadership role. So what I what I want to ask you is how does someone actually do that? How do you reignite your career? Yeah, it's um I think you have to well I'll remind you, Kim, that uh, you're speaking to a New Zealander who went to a drinking university. So at an early age did I say to myself, Yes, okay, Hamish, come on, you're definitely gonna be a CEO material. Um, <laughs> no is the answer within that. But equally I and I think I'm probably, I hope I'm similar to most people, I never put a career ceiling. Um, I never thought around being sort of at a CEO level, uh, director level or anything, but I never had a barrier in my mind of what could be. Now, whether that's, uh, you know, from my sort of, uh, you know, my folks at all, um, I, I, I don't know. The, the chapter you mentioned, it's... Um, I think it's an important one. I've had a career that I've been tapped on the shoulder many times and said, hey, Hamish, would you like to go within this direction? So I moved from copywriting in London advertising into uh, sports and fashion world within Europe through Reebok and then into, you know, wonderful 20 years within Mars, brand roles, CEOs, regional president roles all throughout the world. And I loved it, but virtually at every stage, I was tapped on the shoulder and said, hey, I think it's time you became a marketing director or a sales director or now's your time to actually hit up a big unit or take on multiple markets, uh, be a, um, a regional president. And they always worked out fine and it's been wonderful on that. However, I do like the concept of trying to control your own path and your own destiny. And it may not always work out, but being in control of your agenda leading change as opposed to managing someone else's change, um, I think the more you can do that, uh, it's uh, it's better. And I think two instances which I mentioned within the book I've been very proud of is one, when I did the last one, we came back from the UK and that was a family decision at the age of the kids and that was incredibly hard. I was loving my role uh, across within the UK and heading up European confections. It was exceptional, great team, big turnaround situation, um, and it was just a, a lot of fun. But it was the right time for the family and the right time for me, and I actually felt proud of that, that I made that call and I led my agenda. And equally, this last one, probably around 15 months ago, when I took the decision, which my wife and my boss still think I'm, uh, my former <laughs> boss still think I'm crazy when I resigned from Mars, um, <laughs> It's just uh, I needed something fresh. I've been doing this sort of 20 years, um, going into the world of startups, a bit of PE, um, you know, joining sort of a few of these other board positions. It's a whole new perspective. Writing a book has been different, new, exciting. Um, and 
it's allowed me to be in that position to sort of control my agenda. The thing that I do realize, I am lucky to put myself in that position. It's not always that easy, particularly if you're not financially uh, at that position or you still within your career, you believe you're within, um, within prove mode and, uh, and on that, and I think experience benefits. But the more you can try and set that agenda, your talents, your passions, and get a job that supports that, um, similar to what we talked around, um, you know, prior to this uh, podcast, around our kids doing things that they're passionate around and talented around. It's a marriage. It's a marriage made in heaven when you uh, join a business or a company that uh, provides that. Um, hard to do, but uh, that's the ideal. Mm. Well, I think that you know that's a great place for us to put a line under the discussion today. One last question: What's happening now? What's next? I don't know. It's interesting at the moment. I'm, um, <laughs> I'm loving what I'm doing, but um, I'm probably, I think I will get back into corporate life, but uh, it will be with a twist and a difference. Um, and I think the most important thing, and I, so a wonderful quote, uh, which I heard from uh, Grant Reed, who's head of Mars Inc., said, performance without purpose is meaningless. Purpose without performance is impossible. So, the types of industries and businesses that I want to uh, talk to and I'm involved with at the moment, a little bit of investing, um, they are very much uh, purpose-led businesses, but they realise you have to perform to make a difference. Um, it's even the same within the world of uh, OzHelp and a few of the other charity boards. So that's the next stage. Um, my wife's probably getting a little bit sick of me at being at uh, home as well <laughs> without the traveling of COVID, so she'll kick me out soon. But, uh, oh, soon I'm, enough. Uh, I'll be back it'll into be, it. It'll be from a, it will be said from a place of love. <laughs> Hamish, it's been fantastic to have a chat. Congratulations on the book. I think it's actually a really valuable addition to the whole world of uh, leadership and texts and how-tos. And uh, we're really looking forward to seeing what's the next chapter for Hamish Thompson. Thanks so much. Thank you, Kim. Thanks, Hamish. Thanks, Kim. That's been a great discussion about leadership, decision-making, and that all-important, as, as Hamish you like to put it, life-work balance. I like that. Well, folks, thanks very much for joining us for this episode that's been brought to you by Planet Protector Packaging. We'll be back in the not-too-distant future with another informative episode, but until then, have a great day. You've been listening to the Food and Drink Business Podcast, produced by Southern Skies Media on behalf of Food and Drink Business, owned and published by Yaffa Media. The views of the people featured on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of Food and Drink Business, Yaffa Media, or the guest's employer. The contents are copyright by Yaffa Media. If you wish to use any of this podcast's audio, please contact us via our website or send an email to editor at foodanddrinkbusiness.com.au. You can subscribe to this podcast via your preferred platform and read all the latest news on Australia's food and beverage industry at foodanddrinkbusiness.com.au. You've been listening to a Yappa Media Podcast.